This week did not go quite as planned, and this sermon refused to go where I was trying to tell it to go. It insisted upon being a preview of our upcoming pageant, which seemed to me an unnecessary spoiling of some of the fun. Therefore, bowing to the hectic realities of life and in honor of the various voices of this season, I have decided it is time once again for our occasional replaying of the classic holiday game, Name That Prophet. (laughs) See if he sounds familiar. His birth was prophesied long before he was in fact born, and he was in fact born. He was born of a virgin, and a star marked the time and place of his birth. He was saved in infancy from the murderous jealousy of the secular ruler. At the age of about 30, he began preaching. He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. He cured the blind, cast out demons, and performed many other miracles. His central message was about a supreme God of truth and goodness. And I am talking about... Zoroaster, born in Persia about 700 years before the prophet Jesus. As Christopher Morley has commented, it is almost an impertinence to try to write anything new about Christmas in particular, and I think that applies to the other winter holy days as well. This is the time of year when retelling the old stories is a traditional part of all the celebrations. So that's what I'd like to do this morning, tell some of the stories from the traditions that are central to our Unitarian Universalist winter holy days, in part because they're good stories and I enjoy telling them. I can only hope that you also will enjoy hearing them, and in part because it is helpful to remember the human stories, the human hopes and fears, the longings and the gifts that are honored in this season. In the oldest of our stories, we meet Frigga, the Norse goddess of love, the mother of Baldur, this god of the sun. It was very, very long ago during the midwinter peace stead or peacetime of the gods when violence was forbidden and all hatred and strife were to be forgotten. Frigga had a dream that her beloved son would be killed. And hoping to prevent such a tragedy, she went to all the beings and spirits and creatures of the heavens and the earth, extracting from each one the promise that they would not harm Baldur. But she missed the tiny mistletoe growing high up in the oak tree. And Loki, the god of darkness and chaos and evil, noticed her oversight. So Loki suggested a new game for the gods. Although violence was forbidden at this time of the year, since Baldur was now truly immortal, let's play throw the spear at the sun god. Baldur agreed to play. Baldur was not really bright. And everyone was vastly amused. Only Hoder, the blind god of winter, did not choose to participate. But Loki made a special arrow tipped with a sharp sprig of mistletoe. He gave it to Hodor, and he guided the blind god's hand, and Baldur was killed. And all the gods were horrified and would have slain Loki and the guilt-stricken Hodor immediately were it not for the fact that it was peace-stead. So they tried for three days to raise the dead god while Frigga wept, and her tears falling onto the mistletoe turned to pear-like shining berries. 
At last, after three days, the power of Frigga's love restored Baldur to life, and in her joy, Frigga declared that the mistletoe was to be forever harmless, forever a symbol of love. The Druid priests of pagan Europe held the mistletoe, therefore, to be sacred and never allowed it to touch the ground. Holly also was sacred, for it had been given by the gods to keep the world beautiful when the sacred oaks were leafless. During their solstice rituals, the priests with the sacred holly in their hair went into the oak forests to cut the mistletoe, bless it, and give it to their followers in exchange for gifts that the followers gave to the priests. The shining berries, pearlescent in their their gleaming, were understood to contain the sunlight of Baldur for safekeeping until he rose from death again and the light of the sun returned. During this time of the solstice, the Druids decorated oak trees with apples and candles, the apples to thank the god Odin for their crops and the candles to honor Baldur. They celebrated the midwinter triumph of the thunder god Thor, who, dressed all in red, left his dwelling in the far-frozen north to drive away the gods of ice and snow. Odin, Thor's father, would at this season ride his eight-footed horse Sleipner through the world, distributing rewards or punishments as appropriate to everyone. Does any of this sound at all familiar? (laughs) Maybe just a bit. The pagan Germans, worshippers of the goddess Hertha, in midwinter would build a great fire on a sacred hearth. The smoke would rise from a hole in the ceiling, and the goddess would descend through the smoke and the chimney hole to distribute gifts of good fortune to her people. The Norse and Druid peoples also lit great fires at the solstice. The Druids burned an oak or apple log, saving a bit of it to use as kindling for the next year's sacred fire. The Norse, seeing the wheel of the sun rolling away from them as solstice approached, lit a fire to celebrate its turning back toward the earth at Yuletide, wheel turning, the time of the wheel's return. The Northern Europeans weren't the only ones holding celebrations around the time of the solstice in mid to late December. In pre-Druidic England, the Angli had celebrated Mother's Night on December 25th as the beginning of the new year. In Syria and Egypt, the solstice was celebrated on December 25th by priests and worshippers who entered a cave or a shrine, and then at midnight would come forth proclaiming, The Virgin has brought forth a son, the light is returning. This virgin, of course, was Isis, the mother of the sun god Horus, who was born every year on December 25th. Her priests came out of the sacred shrine holding aloft an infant, or an image of an infant, to reassure the people that the Nile's flooding and ebbing would remain reliable, and that the sun god and the virgin mother would continue to bless them all. Isis' brother, husband Osiris, the father of Horus, was also supposedly born on December 25th, and Osiris, murdered by his brother and rival Set, is annually reborn in the person of Horus, his son. And it's likely, by the way, that the Egyptian images of Isis and her child and Set and Osiris gave the early Christians the idea for the animals at the manger. 
The white ox was Osiris's symbol. The red donkey was Set's. And it was suggested that the coming of Jesus and the peaceful watching in the manger by ox and donkey together demonstrated the end of both their reign and their conflict as they welcome the newborn God who is to be their successor. In Rome, from about the 17th until the 25th of December, the feast of Saturn, the Saturnalia, honored the god of agriculture with the giving of gifts, visiting friends, feasting, and general all-round good time carousing. During the Saturnalia, people decorated their homes with holly and with laurel, sacred to the god Apollo. They brought trees into their homes and decorated them with candles and small ornaments. They set an image of the sun god at the top, and during this festival time, all violence and hatred were to be set aside. In Persia, fires were lit at the solstice to celebrate the birth of the god Mithra, the god of light, who came to be known to his Roman cultic followers as Invictus, the unconquerable one. And his birthday, which was again, would you like to guess? December 25th, combined with the Saturnalia festivities to celebrate Natalis Invicti, the birthday of the unconquered God, who was both human and divine, and who personified the triumph of good over evil, of light over the darkness. And also, just sort of by the way, angels sang at the births of both the Buddha and Confucius, Confucius got a unicorn instead of an angel for his birth's annunciation, and two dragons were present at his birth. Why the dragons weren't adopted for the manger, I don't quite understand. (laughs) Four kings were present at Buddha's birth. Krishna of India was born of a virgin in a cave marked by a star. Indra of Tibet was also born of a virgin. He descended from heaven to enter into her womb. And Zoroaster, as I mentioned before, was also born of a virgin. The Zoroastrians believed and believe still that a star heralds every birth. And the wise men who supposedly went looking for Jesus, if they existed at all, may very well have been astrologers from the Zoroastrian priesthood. There is one historical event that needs to be remembered in the midst of all these myths. Let it be noted that the stories I've told so far are indeed stories. They are myths, they are sacred tales, sacred tellings. They're true on a heart level, but not factually. At least I assume not. The story of Hanukkah is unique in this system of gathering of holidays in that it is the only celebration of something that really did happen, probably pretty much as recorded in history, And these events predate the birth of Jesus, whenever that took place, by more than 300 years. In 332, before the Common Era, the Greeks took over Jerusalem. After the death of Alexander the Great, control of Judea, and so Jerusalem passed on to the Syrians, who wanted to force Hellenic culture onto the Jews. The Jews thought this was an exceedingly bad idea. They wanted to continue living their own lives, worshiping their God the way they were accustomed to. They did not want to be told that they had to learn Greek, that they had to give up their cultural expressions, that they could not study Torah, and that they could not worship their God but must instead give sacrifice to the Greek gods. That sacrificing to the Greek gods was the final straw. 
The Maccabean revolt against the Syrian Greek overlords began in 168 before the Common Era. After three years of guerrilla warfare, the outnumbered and ill-supplied Maccabeans drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and re-entered the desecrated temple and set to work restoring it. On the 25th day of Kislev, 165 years before the Common Era, they were ready to rededicate the temple. And Judas Maccabeus lit the temple menorah, even though there was not enough desecrated oil to burn for more than one day. And yet that lamp burned. It burned for eight days until new oil could be prepared. And so the Hanukkah festival, the festival of the dedication, the festival of lights, lasts as that first Hanukkah light lasted for eight days. And about a century and a half later, sometime between six before the Common Era and nine of the Common Era, during one of the two terms of Quirinius as Roman governor over Syria, more likely the earlier date because that was also the date of the clustering of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn within the constellation of Pisces, which was a clustering that had also occurred, according to tradition, at the time of the birth of Moses, assuming Moses A existed and B was born, uh, somewhere in the Galilean region of Judea, maybe in Bethlehem, but most likely not, a child was born to a carpenter named Joseph, a descendant of the house of David, and his wife, whose name was Mary. And not a single story told about that child was new. There are two nativity stories in the New Testament. Matthew tells about wise men from the east and the star, the encounter with Herod and the slaughter of the innocents, an event taken by most Christians as reliable history, but in fact there is no independent historical confirmation that such an attack on Jewish families actually took place. In Matthew there is no manger. The wise men of unspecified number go to a house. There are no angels, there are no shepherds. It's Luke who tells us about angels and shepherds, sends Mary and Joseph into the manger, emphasizes Mary's virginity, and tells about Mary's earlier encounter with her cousin Elizabeth, but makes no mention of wise men or stars. Matthew's gospel was written about 40 years after the death of Jesus, about 70 of the common era, to a Jewish audience trying to convince them that Jesus of Nazareth really was the Messiah foretold by the Jewish scriptures. Luke's gospel came about 10 years after Matthew's, and it was written by a Greek Christian for a non-Jewish, Greek-influenced audience. Hence the emphasis on the supernatural virgin birth, which would be familiar to and expected by the followers of the pagan religions, and the emphasis not on Joseph and his Jewish lineage, but on Mary and her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, themes that would be familiar to worshipers of the goddess. The earliest Christians did not celebrate Jesus' birth. Only evil people like Pharaoh and Herod, it was believed, celebrated birthdays. But when Jesus kept on not coming back, through the Christian community's first two centuries as an underground religion, the stories about Jesus began dropping his humanity and threatened to transform him into a rising, dying, rising God 
just like all the other dying and rising and dying and rising gods. And the church leaders realized they had to rehumanize the Christ or their whole doctrine of the atonement would fall apart. So they had to give Jesus a birthday. They started with a spring date. Since the world was created at the vernal equinox, it was believed, so too would that clearly be the right time for the new creation that began with the birth of the Messiah. Besides, the tradition said there were shepherds around, and shepherds would only have been in the fields from mid-March until mid-November. So they tried dates in March, in April, and in May. And you can tell that those dates did not stick. And they failed in large part because the Christian people had already been celebrating the birth of Jesus at the same time the pagans were holding their solstice celebrations. They were decorating their homes with holly and mistletoe, in large part so as not to be too conspicuous amongst the pagan celebrants, but also, I suspect, because everyone really loves a good excuse for a party, and this was a great excuse. The Christians didn't want to celebrate the old pagan festivals, but they had their parties with a different reason. The church tried to separate the birth of Jesus from the Saturnalia in particular by suggesting January 6th as the birth date, and that is when some eastern branches of Christianity do celebrate Christmas, to get it away from the pagan rituals. But they failed there, too, because January 6th is the day of the Greek festival of Dionysus and of the birth of Aeon, or the New Year, to the virgin goddess Kore, daughter of Demeter, and once again, the pagans won. And you now have a whole list of new words when you do the New York Times crossword puzzle. (laughs) Rome had long celebrated the Mithraic Natalis Invicti on December 25th. After Christianity became the official religion of Rome, after Constantine's conversion in 312, December 25th came to be regarded as the obvious date for celebrating the birth of the Christian's Son of God. The date became official in 350 by decree of Pope Julius I, who gave up trying to pull it away from the pagans. But the Christians did go to work trying to eradicate the pagan elements. Gift-giving was condemned as pagan. The use of evergreens, especially mistletoe, was condemned as pagan. From about 350 to the early 12th century, Christmas was supposed to be a purely spiritual, purely Christian celebration. And then the war on Christmas broke out. In the 12th century, in spite of the church's admonitions, gift-giving began again. People revived the stories of the 3rd century bishop, Nicholas of Patara, the son of wealthy parents who disguised himself and went about his community giving small bags of gold to the needy. The church canonized Nicholas in the 9th century, and although Pope John Paul II officially revoked Nick's sainthood, on the rather silly grounds that the man might not even have existed. Uh, Well, as, as we've seen, you simply cannot erase a good story or a good role model from people's hearts. In the late 14th century or thereabouts, the old pagan decorations and celebrations, such as the Yule log and the decorated fir tree, returned, remythologized to be Christian. It even began to be argued that the shape of the fir tree was intended to symbolize the Holy Trinity. 
which would have really surprised the pagans. <laughs> However, the pagan symbolism of the winter holy days was never overcome. The pagans did win. And their symbolism should not have been overcome. It needs to be here. This is a season of many voices, an eclectic season, because all these different stories, all these different myths belong together, if not in human history, then certainly in the human heart. For all of these stories, all of these celebrations of the annual solstice or return of the light of the sun, the historical triumph of the Maccabees in defense of their worship of their god, the mythical birth of a real man and great teacher of love and compassion and service to God, to neighbor, to life. They're all very simple stories of common human themes. They all speak of such eternal human longings as the longing for love, for hope, for trust, for joy, for freedom, and for peace. They all are stories about the never-ending effort of the human heart to, to push itself or perhaps allow itself to be pulled into a new way of being, into a time, however brief, in which myths are not just stories and miracles are not delusions, but rather revelations of the most basic gifts of the spirit. A time when, as we say each year, the words peace on earth, goodwill to all, and shalom aleichem shalom are tidings of living truth, not a mere sighing after distant dreams. As I extinguish the flame of our congregation's chalice, take this flame, each of you, into the chalice of your own heart. Carry its light, its dance, its beauty out into the world that needs you. Go forth with joy, go forth and be peace. Blessed be and amen.